the, the main text today is going to be Genesis 22. But before that, I'm, I'm going to jump a little before that to start um, because I think the backstory to it will help us pull some some more stuff out of uh, Genesis 22. So name of the lesson today is Water and a Ramp. Um, so we have three main characters. We have three main characters that we're going to be looking at. One is Abraham, two is Sarai, Sarah, and three is Hagar. Okay, so we're going to start in chapter 16. I'm not going to read the whole thing because... Um, yeah, we already lost an hour from Daylight Savings. I don't want to lose an hour. So chapter 16, we find ourselves in chapter 16, Sarah and Abraham, and they still have no kids, right? They still have no children, even though God has promised them, hey, you're going to have a lot, a lot of offspring. You're going to control this land. You're going to, um, it's going to be like the stars in the sky, but they still have no kids. Right. And so their hope is kind of dwindling. And so Sarah, she turns to Abraham. She says, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. So they basically take it into their own hands. They're like, this isn't working the way that God wanted us to. Let's just figure it out this other way. So Abraham, he says, okay, he sleeps with, it says he sleeps with Hagar. And then Hagar conceives. And this is 16 verse four. It says, when she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. So Hagar begins to despise Sarai once she knows that she's pregnant. Uh, my whole life, when I read that, I thought, oh, she probably despised her. She had or she had contempt for Sarai because, oh, maybe she felt better than her. Maybe Hagar was being prideful and she was like, oh, well, what can you tell me? Like, I, I'm pregnant and you're not. Right. I'm having your baby. But now when I look at it, I'm thinking, why would she have contempt um, she didn't exactly consent to all that, right? And I thought about how would I have felt if I was Hagar, and then I hear my master, my master's wife, chirping over here, talking about me, but not talking to me, and saying, oh, let's just use her, right? And then all of a sudden, Abraham's in my tent, talking about lineage or something, right? That's, that would make me, I, I feel like, okay, I would have some contempt for Sarai too, right? Uh, this week in Bible talk, uh, I used this book as a reference. Sweet. It's called The Anatomy of Peace. Jamal showed it to me. It is really good. Look, it says number one conflict resolution bestseller for over a decade. So if you have conflicts, you should read it. Um, but... The point that, that book, this book makes is that when we mistreat somebody, we have to dehumanize them internally in order to justify it. Right. And so that is what Sarai did to Hagar. She dehumanized Hagar. Hagar definitely felt dehumanized, but she had to dehumanize her. How do I know that she dehumanized Hagar? She never calls Hagar by her name. In the whole, the whole book, she never says, hey, Hagar. She says, my slave girl, my slave girl, my slave girl, my slave girl, right? Never calls her by her name. So she's just an object to her. Also, Abraham, if you look, he doesn't really speak to Hagar at all. If if there's any part where he speaks to Hagar, it's to say, get out of here later on. And so Abraham's not off the hook either. I mean, yeah, yeah, he's not off the hook either. 
And so you just have this dehumanizing relationship. It's, she doesn't really exist to them. She's just like an object. She's just a working wound to these people. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so that, I mean, when I read that, I'm like, goodness gracious, uh, who have I dehumanized? Who is someone who, I don't call them by name, I might call them adjective. I might call them group, uh, political party. I might call them race. I might call them gender. I might call them noun, right? Who am I dehumanizing? And I'm not calling them by their name. So all of this contempt, this relationship is real messy. Really, really, really messy. And if we continue, I'm not even close to this. Okay, here we go. So we continue and this doesn't get better, right? So it says that Sarah mistreats, Sarai mistreats Hagar so much that Hagar ends up running away. Where does she run away? Verse 7, chapter 16, verse 7. Where are you at? Okay, so then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was a spring that is beside the road to Shur. So Hagar runs away and we find her in a desert. So that one scripture in Proverbs that men usually like to read to each other is better to live in a desert than with a quarrelsome and nagging wife. It's, I think this is interesting because it brings a different dynamic to that. It's not the husband who runs away to the desert. It's just someone in the household. And so that can apply to more than just, in some translations say quarrelsome and nagging woman. And I mean, we're not off the hook, quarrelsome and nagging person, right? It's better to live in the desert than with a quarrelsome and nagging person. You do not want to be the person who people would rather live in the desert than live with you. And that happens by dehumanizing people. That happens by objectifying people, not treating them with the dignity they deserve. All right, now verse 7. Let's continue. So it says, The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was a spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me, she said, for I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Bir Lahai Roi. It is still there between Kadesh and Barat. All right. So we mentioned how Sarah never calls her Hagar. But what is the first thing that the angel calls her? He says, hey, Hagar. And then he asks her a question. He says, where have you come from? Where are you going? I think that's cool. He knows, right? God always does this. He asks you an obvious question. Hey, where are you coming from? Hey, why are you sad? Like, he knows. But he asks us just to give us an opportunity, right, to tell him. And I think that's interesting because, I mean, as a slave, if she ever heard, where have you come from? Where are you going? It's probably like, where is my fill in the blank? Why aren't you doing what I'm paying you or not paying you to do, right? Where have you come from? Why aren't you fetching me water? But now someone is asking her, where are you coming from? Where are you going? Because they're interested actually in how she is doing, right? So she says, hey, I'm running away. Am I missing something? Yeah, so she says, hey, I'm running away. And he says, go back 
And he says, I'm going to multiply your offspring and you're going to have a son. And his name is going to be Ishmael, meaning God will hear. And he says, because I've heard your misery. I think this is awesome, too. So he says, name your son Ishmael because God hears you. But he says, I heard your misery. Now, you can't really hear misery, which means that this hearing is not just an audible hearing. It's not just this. It's an emotional hearing that God has for us. God hears our feelings. It's way deeper than just a sound. He can hear our feelings. And her response is, oh, wow, not only do you hear me, but you also see me. And she says, you are the God who sees El Roi. And so we see this a lot, hearing, feeling heard and feeling seen. Right. These are two core desires of our heart as people. We want to feel heard and we want to feel seen. And Hagar was able to get that from God. Right. Hagar, beforehand, she was only seen as just a pair of arms and a working womb, right? But now she's seen as a person. She's heard as a person. And it's an awesome example of God meeting the needs of humans when humans cannot meet those needs. Um, even good old Father Abraham can't meet those needs, which is interesting. Come on. All right. So next we're going to move to chapter 21. I don't have a timer, but I think I'm on time. So chapter 21, we're going to jump ahead. And this is another Hagar story. So I wanted to show that Hagar story because there's some chunks in there. They're kind of convicting, but chapter 21, there's some more. And this is where it gets, this is fun. So I'm going to read one through eight. It says, now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him, as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children. Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. All right. This is the first positive thing Sarah has said the whole entire story. First time she says something nice. She finally worships when it happens. She finally worships God when the thing happens, the things that she was hoping for happens. And the problem with doing that is you might have to wait until you're 99 years old until you worship, right? Hagar, on the other hand, she worshiped when she felt heard by God. She felt seen by God when God spoke to her. So she was worshiping a lot younger. She was worshiping a lot more. She probably had a lot more fulfillment in her relationship with God. We cannot wait until something happens to take joy in God's plan. You might be waiting until you're 99 years old to be happy. Let's continue. So verse eight, the child grew and was weaned, verse eight. And on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had borne, Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, get that slave woman and get rid of that slave woman and her son. For that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, do not be distressed about the boy in your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the slave into a nation also, because he is your offspring. All right. 
think I can just keep reading, actually. No, 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 no I'm not going to keep reading. Okay, so it says, this matter distressed Abraham greatly. That word distressed, it also means like he trembled or quivered. So she said, get rid of that slave woman and her boy. And he, ooh, says, oh gosh, I do not like this. Because it's his son. It's his son. Right. But here's one thing that Abraham does this time that he didn't do in chapter 16. He actually consults God after his wife tells him something. And this time God says, yeah, do do what your wife said, which is generally uh, good practice. Listen to your wife. But uh, but I mean, this is such a disturbing thing. Like, listen to your wife. Yeah. Send those people out into the desert. What? And I think I mean, it seems harsh in the moment, but God knows the full story. Right. And so when we have difficult moments, we need to this scripture is really helpful for me when I'm going through difficult moments, it says for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes on not what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So God knows this. God knows that our troubles are light and momentary. Maybe we're in this little desert right here, but. In the long story, it is a light and momentary trouble. So Abraham sends them out, and I'm going to continue. I need a bigger print Okay. Early the next morning, verse 14, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. I'm going to read that again. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down about a bow shot away. For she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. As she sat there, she began to sob. God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. So this is interesting. So a few things. Early the next morning, Abraham sends him out. This is a, he does it again in the next chapter, right? It says early the next morning, Abraham got up and goes out, right? I think that's pretty cool. Um, secondly, so God hears the boy crying and then he speaks to Hagar. So last time when they were in the desert, God heard Hagar. This time God hears the boy. Well, he hears both of them. But I think it's cool that God hears the cry of the child and he speaks to the mother on account. And he says, don't be afraid. Nothing's changed. Ishmael will still become a great nation. And this scripture, it also makes plain that God is not against Hagar and Ishmael. If you read this real fast, you can think, oh, God doesn't like Hagar and Ishmael. But it literally says God was with Ishmael. God was with the boy. And then God opens her eyes and she sees a well of water. Verse 19, God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. Was the well there the whole time or was it just a miraculous boom? Here's a well. Who knows? But it does say God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And so here's the point that I get from that. Most of the time, the answers to our spiritual thirst are right in front of us. We just need to open our eyes. 
God's provision, it doesn't take a bunch of effort. It does, you don't have to dig the well. You don't have to dig the well. You don't have to find a river. You Most of the time, the river is literally right there in front of you. And we just need to open our eyes. So why do I talk about Hagar so much? Why am I reading all this stuff about Hagar? So the book of Genesis, probably every chapter, God makes a promise. God is constantly making promises in the book of Genesis. But I bring Hagar into this because God makes it clear that through her story, that Genesis is not just, and the book of the Bible is not just full of promises for the successful, wealthy male head of household from the right lineage, from the right country, with the nice long beard and the cloak, right? I mean, Abraham, it's, God will talk to Abraham. Abraham's biggest problem in his life was, who do I give all my wealth and inheritance to? If you think about it, that was his biggest problem. Who am I going to give my inheritance to? He's a wealthy man. And God talks to him, and God will also talk to the young, abused, single mother with no family, no wealth, in a foreign land, with nothing to her name but an empty water sack and a dying child. That's also who God speaks to. That's also who God's promises are for. And God sees her, God hears her, God speaks to her. The question is, if you are in anywhere in between that spectrum, is how humble is your heart, right? Because Sarah also had just as much opportunity to hear from God, see God, speak to God. Sarah had the same opportunity. But in chapter 18, when God spoke to her, she laughed from inside of her tent. Remember? Yeah. In chapter 16, when God speaks to Hagar, she worships. She says, you are El Roi. So how humble is our heart? God is speaking. God is hearing. God is looking at you. How humble is your heart? Now, another reason why I bring Hagar into this is because this little story right here, chapter 21, is crazy similar to the story in chapter 22. Crazy similar. So we're going to start reading chapter 22. I know it's a lot of reading, but it's okay. Yeah, thank God we can read. So chapter 22, verse 1 says, Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I will show you. Okay, stop. Three questions from this. One, why is God testing Abraham? Why is God testing him? Two, why is he saying your son, your only son, your son who you love, when he obviously has two sons, right? And then three, why is he telling him to sacrifice his son as a burnt offering on a mountain? Those three big questions that should pop out to us when we read just that, right? So first, why is God testing him? So it's important to know the distinction between testing and tempting, right? So God will test us, and a test from God is order in order to confirm our faith. God will put us in a difficult scenario sometimes to test us to see our true colors, right? That is way different than tempting us, which is what Satan will do. Tempting is to push you toward doing evil, it's to try to persuade you to do evil. Right. A temptation is drawing you toward evil. A test puts you in a difficult scenario to show your true colors. So that is different. And God will test us sometimes. 
Secondly, why is God saying your son, your only son, your son, son whom you love? So, I mean, if we look at the last chapter, his other son got sent away, right? His other son got sent away. Ishmael, okay, let me do the math in my head. So Isaac was being weaned, meaning Isaac was, okay, I don't know what weaned means, but I think it's like two, two years old, three, two or three. So Isaac was two or three. Ishmael was 12, 13 years old. So Ishmael gets sent away. And now Isaac, that baby, he's now 11, 12, 13. So it's been like 10 years since Abraham sent away his, his other son. So to the desert. So he hasn't seen his son. He hasn't seen Hagar. They're in the desert by all intents and purposes. It, it is his only son, right? Ishmael could be dead. Ishmael could be who knows. So that could be one reason why God says, hey, take your son, your only son, the son whom you love, because this is the only son that he has, he has left with him. The other reason is he might be pointing toward Jesus. And this is I think that's why he says it like this. Your son, your only son, your son whom you love. Your son, your only son, your son whom you love. John 1.14 says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Again, in John 1.18, says, No one has ever seen but God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the father has made him known. And then John 3.16 Maybe you've heard of that scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So maybe th this statement was pointing to Jesus, but also it was kind of a re reality for Abraham at the time. This is my only son. My other son's, I don't know, in the desert somewhere. All right, three, our third question. Remember the third question? Why in the world is God telling me to sacrifice my son when obviously you are against human sacrifice, obviously you don't like shedding blood, obviously you are not like these other gods, these other pagan gods. Why are you telling me to do this? This is a huge contradiction. And so when it comes to the Bible and we see contradictions, sometimes you will see contradictions in the Bible. Here's one right here, right? When we see contradictions in scripture, we shouldn't just close the book and say, this is crazy, I'm out. We should actually look a little closer. Contradictions are put in scripture so that we will to draw our attention in. Here's an example in the real world. Um, so y'all know who Jake Paul is? Yes. Just yes, we do. Right. Uh, so Jake Paul, he's like a YouTuber, a Disney Channel kid. And a few years ago, he gets in a celebrity boxing match and he fights some other YouTuber guy, celebrity, and he wins. And so everyone's like, oh, cool, he's boxing. The next year, he goes and he fights Nate Robinson, NBA Hall of Famer, and he knocks him clean out. This YouTuber just knocked out this professional athlete. What in the world? So the whole world, or my demographic, we all go, huh. <laughs> we all go, huh. And we all start looking. We're like, what is this? The next year, he goes and he fights an MMA champion, Ben Askren. And he knocks him out, too. And the whole world, we look and we're like, Huh? What's going on? This is a contradiction. This is a YouTuber guy. How is he beating these fighters? Next year, he fights another MMA fighter, beats him. He fights another one, beats him too. At this point, his fights are huge. They're like on scale with big boxing championships. 
And so all these eyes are on this contradiction, right? This YouTuber is knocking out pro fighters. And then Jake Paul says, hey, I want to bring attention to fighter pay. I want to bring attention to fighter benefits. And he becomes like one of the biggest spokespersons for MMA, like pay in MMA. MMA fighters, they don't get paid that much, especially when they're starting out. And they don't have health insurance. You know that? And so he's like, hey, I'm going to take all these eyes from this contradiction and use it to spread a message to try to get something across. And so God is doing the same thing. (laughs) God is doing the same thing in scripture. I know that's such a 21st century (laughs) reference, but God is doing the same thing in scripture. He has this contradiction. And when our eyes go in and we say, what is going on? He says, okay, now that I have your attention, Here's a little message for you. And we all know, anyone who's read chapter 22 and studied it knows that there's so much in this chapter. God definitely wants our attention. Now, let's keep reading. We answer those three questions. Three, early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. You remember that from the last scripture. Um, He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. Uh, As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, father, yes, my son. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Okay, did he just lie, says his son? Did he just lie? It wasn't a lie. It was, was that a lie or was it just faith, just crazy faith, just insane faith? And then also, remember when he, uh, when he said, verse five, he says, hey, stay here. Me and the boy are going out here. We're going to worship and then we're going to come back. Did he lie? To them, he says, no, we're going to come back. Or did he already know there's no way that God is going to make me actually sacrifice my son? He he either had to know that something was going to happen. God was going to do something. Or he had to believe that God was going to raise his son from the dead or something. He had to believe something. But he had the faith all the whole time. He's like, there's no way I'm still going to obey. But there's no way. That, but I'm still going to obey. There's no way. So was that a lie or was that just crazy faith? Was that just his faithful imagination? I think that that is a check to me. Like, how much is my imagination? How good is my imagination when it comes to faith that I believe? No, nah, God is God would rather raise someone from the dead. Right. Before going back on his promise. <clears throat> All right. So we're going to continue. Verse nine. I don't have any new pictures. I don't have. Any. OK, so verse nine. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. 
So here, oh, okay. So beautiful, cool, super cool story. It has a lot of similarity with chapter 21. First thing is both have parent and an adolescent child and they're sent away for a really unsettling reason. Both Hagar and Ishmael, Abraham and Isaac, right? First unsettling reason is, okay, my son just laughed and now we have to go, we're banished to the desert, right? That's very unsettling. Why would God agree to this? And then the second one is, okay, my son, you're gonna make me sacrifice him, like burn him alive. That's an unsettling reason. So those are two similarities, right? Next, they're in the wilderness and one child is gonna die. They're both lacking something also. So both parents are in the wilderness with their adolescent child. One is lacking water, and that lack of water is going to cause the death of the child. The other is lacking a sacrifice, and the lack of that sacrifice is going to cause the death of that child. Three, well, I might as well just put the slide up. So three, there's a child on the brink of death. Talked about that. Four, the angel of the Lord appears at the very last second and saves the child's life. They speak to the parent on account of the child's life and they provide something. And the way they provide it is the parent's eyes are open and they see something that was there the whole time, but they didn't see it before. Isn't that cool? Both of these stories have so many parallels. For Ishmael, <clears throat> what was provided? Oh, verse 13 in this one, it says, Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. Verse 19 in the previous chapter says, God opened her eyes, Hagar, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. So Ishmael, it was water to refresh his soul. For Isaac, it was a substitute, so he didn't have to die. And in Jesus, we get both. Right? They're both pointing to Jesus. This is my favorite scripture, John 7, 37. It says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this, he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Ishmael got water in the wilderness. Jesus gives us water through the Holy Spirit. Jesus gives us refreshment through the Holy Spirit. The ram in the thicket. This is so cool. This is so cool right here. So the ram in the thicket. I never saw this before. But Matthew 27, 27, uh, from the cross study, or the account of the cross, it says, Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. Wow. So Jesus has thorns all over his head, just like the doggone ram. I have never saw that connection. Isn't that so cool? Right? That the ram is stuck in these thorns uh, 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 right before it gets sacrificed. Jesus has the same symbolic thorns around his head, pointing back to that story. That story is pointing to him. He's pointing back to that story. 
John 3.16, we know this scripture, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So we are like Isaac, right? We should die. We are like Ishmael. We should die. We have no water in the desert. We have no, we, we deserve to die. But God steps in and he brings us water through the Holy Spirit. God steps in and he brings us a sacrifice through his son, Jesus. Oops. Another cool thing about Genesis chapter 22, it's multi-dimensionally pointing to Jesus. Multi-dimensional, that's a big word. Um, but the who, the what, the where, and the why all match up between Genesis 22 and the cross. So what is the who? The who is a father willing to give up his son. Abraham's willing to give up Isaac. God is willing to give up his son. The what is sacrificing his son. God is willing to sacrifice his son. Abraham is willing to sacrifice his son. The where is Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah, this mountain that Abraham is on is the same exact mountain that Jesus was crucified on thousands of years later. And then the why, sacrificial love, right? Abraham was willing to give up his most prized possession for God. And God was willing to give up his most prized possession for us and our old nasty selves. Any more scriptures? I don't. So we got that John 3.16. Water in a ram. Does it make sense? Water in a ram now? <laughs> Why well, it's called water in a ram. So in conclusion, Abraham and Hagar, they both had to learn the difference between trusting the promise that God had for them and trusting the promiser, God himself, right? They found themselves in situations where it looked like their promise was just gone. Their promise was gone. But when you feel like you have nothing is when you have to trust God with everything. Sometimes we can be like Sarah, Sarai, and put God's promise before God, the promiser, and feel like it's our responsibility to make the promise happen, right? And then we probably end up disobeying God in order to do that. But we have to trust the promise, sir, no matter what, and the promise will be taken care of. So how much do you trust the promise? God gives us both refreshment. He gives us both water and a ram. He gives us refreshment for our soul, and he gives us a substitutionary atonement through Jesus Christ. Um, amen. Amen. That's it. We're not done clapping. Keep going. That was wow. One of the few people who can turn Jake Paul and use him for Jesus. (laughs) No, amen. Just to see.